Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, you no doubt recall that we did an episode a couple of years ago with your mentor, Larry Cuban. Mm-hmm. Yep. And during our conversation, I came up with what I now think of as the education historian's lament. <laughs> that on the one hand, you are possessed of unique and uniquely important insights. And on the other hand... Nobody cares. Nobody cares at all. And never, <laughs> never have I burned with with outrage over the education historian's lament on your behalf, like I did during the endless work on this episode about the science of reading, because it turns out that we have lived through a very similar moment before, and yet almost no one, no one recalls it. It's not just one moment, right? That this has played out several times over the past 75 years. And as it turns out, uh, here we are again, uh, fighting about reading and the best way to teach young people how to do it. So I think what, what, what really prompted this episode was this sort of intense agreement right now that, in fact, this hasn't happened before. And I'm going to give you an example. So um, as an older person, I subscribe to a great many publications, and they arrive in their hard copy form. And one of them is the New York Review of Books. Obviously, I don't go straight to the personals. That would be inappropriate because I'm married. So there was, uh, there was a piece recently called Sold a Story, How Teaching Kids to Read Went So Wrong. I'm just going to read you the paragraph that it includes about the history. Um, the, the bad news is that for the past 30 years, despite research that clearly established phonics as the best, the only way to teach reading, many American schools clung to the pseudo-methods and fantasies of an educational approach known as balanced literacy. And so what uh, the point of this episode is to revisit the now-forgotten history that is, in fact, so recent that we, we lived through it. <laughs> Yeah, Nick Kristoff recently wrote about this in his New York Times column. He referred to his personal history, uh, raising children when he was a New York Times correspondent in East Asia and sending them to school where they were learning how to read through phonics uh, in Taiwan and China and Japan. And then they moved back to the United States and their children weren't being taught how to read, uh, as he now understands from having listened to Emily Hanford's podcast, Sold a Story. And he concludes his column by saying, you know, we are failing the next generation. We've got to be, quote, relentlessly empirical and focus on the evidence. And as it turns out, right, this is the exact kind of argument that we heard you know, roughly 30 to 40 years ago and a couple decades before that. Um, so, you know, once again, the, the historian's lament uh, must be cried. 
We don't know exactly where Nick Kristoff ended up after he returned from East Asia. His home address has always been a source of mystery and controversy. (laughs) But the irony is that by the end of the 90s, there were 25 states that had enacted laws mandating phonics instruction. So it just shows you how, how selective his memory is. Be careful, Jennifer. We're already going to get a lot of hate mail for this episode, no matter what we say about the so-called science of reading. You see, what, even just calling it the so-called science of reading, it's like, that's 100 letters right there. Now you're also going to get Nick Kristoff fans writing us, and you know he has legions. Okay, now to the main event, and it starts with a trip in the time machine, to the dawn of the new millennium to be precise. Our first stop is East Palo Alto, California, home to a then brand new teacher named Sarah Wolfen. I started teaching in 2000, right before NCLB in Northern California when there was a teacher shortage. So I came in as a, you know, emergency certified kindergarten teacher and was handed, I think it was, you know, with three days before the start of the year, was told, like, we use open court at our school, we use sound spelling cards, we use decodable books, and this is the routine for how many books students go through. And I have to admit, I found there were certain strengths and there was certain value to sort of having a program, especially for someone coming out, you know, emergency certified. There were a lot of novice teachers within the site. You know, it gave us something that we could kind of have as like the root or the base for lesson planning. It gave us something that we could talk about consistently when we were talking together about planning and how students were responding. Sarah is now an associate professor in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. But she started teaching in California at a time when the pendulum had already swung back towards a structured approach to teaching reading, heavy on phonics. And when George W. Bush assumed the highest office in the land and made phonics instruction a priority, Sarah and her colleagues were already there. Which is how, when her school applied to be part of Bush's Reading First program, Sarah was tapped to be the reading coach. After three years, she was now one of the most experienced teachers at her elementary school. I was sent to sort of these coach trainings, coach institutes, which were crystal clear that everything aligned with reading first was based in what was deemed scientifically based reading research. And, you know, it's tattooed in my brain. I do or do not want a tattoo on my arm that says SDRR, but that was absolutely everywhere as like the stamp or the lingo. For coaches, we had five-day, either three or five-day institutes every summer. And then I think we had two other kind of follow-ups during the year. So in the fall, we'd come back together for two days. And it was literally 120, maybe 150 people in like a hotel ballroom. And there were coaches from Sacramento, from Oakland Unified, San Jose. We were all kind of like gathered together and sort of going through these PowerPoints, very explicitly telling us how do we get teachers on board with teaching phonics, using these programs, assessing students on their phonemic awareness skills, on their oral reading. And while Sarah was being coached in the art of coaching, every teacher at her school was also being trained in scientifically-based reading research, an exercise that was being repeated all over California. In a parallel, very systematic and parallel way, there were these teacher institutes too. So in the first kickoff year, every single kindergarten through third grade teacher in our school was going to these three to five day institutes on using core reading programs, on assessing students, 
watching video clips. This is how we teach sound spelling cards. This is how we assess the students. Here's the students' assessment results. What would you do? But yeah, I mean, it was a massive scale, really in a kind of pretty intensive form of professional development. The through line was really thought through, like coaches are going to learn this. They're going to support their teachers or work with their teachers on X or Y. Teachers are also going to learn about this and this. Principals are going to do walkthroughs and district leaders are going to be kind of expecting and looking for certain things that match on. That core reading program was at the center of it. And it wasn't just in California where phonics fever was in full flight. Then-Governor George W. Bush had made phonics-intensive reading instruction a hallmark of his time as governor. And now he was about to take his plan national. Jim Hoffman is a professor of language and literacy at the University of North Texas. But during the Bush years, he was at the University of Texas and deeply immersed in reading policy. And he wanted to make sure that teachers and teacher educators outside of Texas understood what they were in for. When Bush decided that he was going to focus his educational platform and programs on reading, what happened in Texas over the four to seven years of that eventually just moved into Washington and became part of NCLB. So everything that was part of NCLB had been our lives. Texas had been the test sort of ground for many of those pieces of that particular puzzle. Jim says that to make sense of the scale of the state's shift on reading instruction during the Bush years, we have to consider how Texas handles textbooks. One of the key features to understand is the amount of investment that Texas puts into books and to instructional materials in the state. So the state of Texas pays for all textbooks in schools in Texas, and that's very unusual. You can't find that anywhere else, really. Uh, And what that means is that school districts don't have to worry and go through, oh, should we get a new reading program? What reading program should we get? What Texas does is says you're getting a new reading program every seven years. And the criteria for what that program will have to include will be determined by the state, not by the local districts. That was a huge shift that happened with the governor's reading initiatives. That is, districts used to be able to, there was a list of publishers, basal publishers that would be approved by the state, but there wasn't really any specific criteria other than it needed to be research-based, it needed to be high quality, et cetera, then districts could choose which of those books they wanted to adopt for their school district. As part of the governor's reading initiative, the attention to what textbooks could be sold in Texas, for example, the focus on decodable text, was put in as a requirement. So if you were going to submit to sell books in Texas, so Harcourt, all of the different publishers had to create programs that were aligned with that particular call. And what happens in Texas affects the country because those books were then turned and sold across the country. So a lot of the movements and shifts in instruction that were associated with the governor's reading initiative and sort of the mechanics of it were associated with this textbook adoption process. Fast forward to the present, and today Texas is essentially returning to the same policies that were rolled out during the Bush years, including retraining teachers in the science of reading. Back in that period of the Governor's Reading Initiative, every teacher had to go through these workshops that were focused on the same things that the new workshops are focused on today. Those training professional development sessions, there were multiple sessions, were developed by the Texas Reading Center and then trained in districts around the state. And that's happening now again 
with the letters program that's been mandated for every teacher in the state of Texas. It's one more instance where there's just no research to support the level of resources that are being devoted to these teacher training packages. Okay, so Jack, I'm going to bring you back in because I feel like this period of time is one that you really have a firm grip on. Am I correct? So you're, you're, you're talking about the last 2,000 years. <laughs> yes. So I want you to whisk <laughs> us through the reading wars beginning 2,000 years ago. <laughs> well, the transition from clay tablets was a difficult one. As papyrus rolled out, you see what I did there with fun? I, uh, a, a, yeah, across, that was great. <laughs> okay, but what I really need your help with, I think for, for people who are listening to this episode who have never heard of Reading First or had no idea that George W. Bush was so passionate about this issue, we just need some, some context. Can you give us a sense of the sort of scale and novelty of this program? I think most people remember NCLB as the law that introduced test-based accountability. And it, of course, did that, but it also did a number of other things. And one of them was it introduced a billion dollars a year in funding for what it called scientifically-based reading instruction. So those dollars would go to Title I schools. So these are schools serving a large percentage of young people in poverty. And it restricted the use of those funds to programs focusing on phonics and phonemic awareness, vocabulary, and then fluency and comprehension. And all of that comes out of the so-called science of reading, right? There was a real focus on that kind of approach. And across those six years, six times a billion gives you $6 billion in uh, federal resources that went to roughly 6,000 schools in about 1,700 districts. So it certainly isn't all schools, right? The scale of the U.S. is we've got uh, 18,000 districts and 98,000 schools, you know, give or take a few hundred. Um, but still, we're talking about roughly 10% of districts and a little under 10% of schools. Again, these are uh, schools serving a lot of low-income kids. Because of America's history, that also means they were serving a lot of uh, racially minoritized kids, a lot of young people from uh, immigrant households or from households that otherwise uh, are speaking languages other than English at home. And uh, there was a lot of faith at the time in the power of so-called scientifically-based reading instruction uh, to transform uh, reading results in those schools. There was a lot of faith that within the first three years of schooling that these young people would be acquiring reading fluency at rates much higher than they previously had. 
Thank you for that very helpful overview, Jack. So as you understand now, the George W. Bush initiative known as Reading First was big, which meant that teachers all over the country were being trained and retrained in scientifically-based reading research. Rebecca Silverman was one of them. She is now an associate professor of early literacy at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. But when Reading First was being rolled out, Rebecca was a brand new elementary school teacher in New Orleans. The only professional development that I received that year was on phonics. And the interesting part of it was the program that my district chose was a program for children with special needs. We were using a very incredibly structured, systematic, explicit program for all kids without differentiating for kids who might be at a higher or lower level. And I I learned later why that was problematic, but the sole focus was on phonics. I didn't know about any anything else as a new teacher. I didn't know that I was also supposed to be supporting oral language. I was also supposed to be supporting writing. I wasn't given professional development on those things. Rebecca would go on to grad school in Boston, then spend 11 years as an academic in Maryland during the implementation of Common Core. Now she's in California, which is once again in the throes of transforming the way reading is taught. And Rebecca says that there is a common thread that connects her experience in New Orleans to the Common Core years to what's happening in California right now. We've gone through a series of course corrections that have overcorrected. And I think that's where we're running into problems. We're having a hard time negotiating how to do all of the things involved in reading at the same time, because there are so many factors at play when we talk about learning to read. And so I think that's where a lot of the tension comes from, is that different political factions or or even social factions are interested in specific parts of this puzzle. And when they push really hard on that part, that part, we make policy around that part, and then that part dominates. And then we start to forget some of the other things that we need to be paying attention to. Rachel Gabriel is a professor of literacy education at the University of Connecticut, and she says that it's important to understand the return of the science of reading as part of an older story. And it's the same story over and over again. Pieces of it shift, like why it comes up and when it comes up and where. But like retention rears its ugly head in a predictable way at a predictable time with predictable players and the same arguments coming back and forth. And none of this is new. None of how we evaluate teachers, none of how we use text in K-3, to none of how we train teachers or decide if they're prepared or ready to teach. Like All of these questions have been the same questions, and they just kind of like wake up and go to sleep, wake up and go to sleep. Right after Brown versus Board was the first time we saw the phonics debate erupt. Every time we set an immigration record, there's going to be a phonics debate and a back-to-basics movement and a privatization push. Rachel started teaching reading in Washington, D.C. as her mother was leaving the profession, in part because she'd grown really weary of the pendulum shifts. My mother was a reading specialist in Brookline, Massachusetts. As a result, was trained in everything, because that's what Brookline does. They equip their professionals to have a repertoire and use it. She wanted me to be anything I wanted to be except a teacher, partly because she said, and even at at the end of her, you know, 30 something year career, every few years, someone comes in and tells you that you, nothing you've done is right and nothing you know is true. And you've got to stop what you're doing and do something different. And it's getting harder and harder to take a step back and still feel like you have integrity as a professional because those voices and the pressures are getting louder and bigger. 
Rachel says that demographic shifts in the teaching profession are a big part of why we've collectively forgotten the previous iteration of the science of reading, despite it being relatively recent. And I'm beginning to think that one of the reasons that we don't have a terribly good memory about these things, I think folks understand the idea of a pendulum swing and we have these ideas, but this time it's different or this time we have science or this time we have better technology and other sort of policy streams and ideas and ways of thinking about things align with it. So it just feels more true and feels more right this time. I think it's a little bit dreamlike to go back. So people don't have a terribly good memory for it because they're kind of like, we're doing what? Are you sure? They're not doing these things for the first time. This particular version of a wave of kind of phonics-focused conversation hits us when we have a lot of beginning teachers who are new to this idea. We've got a lot of teachers who are around year 30 and retiring. We don't have a middle. So we have people that have seen this two to three times that are currently in classrooms, but administrators and a lot of other teachers are really young and haven't seen a round of it yet. The memory hole around the last push for the science of reading can also make for some confusing messaging. There's mixed messaging in the whole science of reading movement, especially the popular movement around the science of reading. One is that nobody's ever been taught this or told this before. And so it's a brand new shift and it's innovative and it's based on the latest neuroscience, which wasn't even a field the first time we had a phonics debate. And it's based on functional MRI, which doesn't even invented the last three times we had a phonics debate. And the other message in the exact same, sometimes in the same piece, like sometimes in the same article or the same interview, is that we've known this for a long time and schools of education have gotten in the way and teachers have gotten in the way and liberals have gotten in the way and everybody's in the way. And that's why kids aren't getting what they need because people are the problem. The everything old is new again element of the science of reading is also showing up on the sales front as some of the same products that were rolled out during the reading first era see new life today. There's also this economic thing where every time there's a demographic change, there's an opportunity to sell new products. And instead of selling sort of brand new, innovative more humanizing, more reflective of the demographic products, we're seeing people buy open court, which is like a huge part of the reading first repertoire. We're not seeing like a progressive response to demographic change or to changing needs in public schools as a result of a a changed world or a changing world. We're seeing products and tools and companies from 20 years ago win back contracts that they've either lost over time or that they had, they're getting renewed and with even more things attached because now you don't just sell curriculum, you sell curriculum and intervention because we're sure somebody's not going to learn from this curriculum. And we don't just sell intervention because you can't have an intervention program without an assessment system. And you can't have an assessment system without a data management system. You can't have data management systems if you don't have data storage and you can't have data storage unless you have a whole new data infrastructure structure. Okay, so Jack, I'm going to break with have you heard precedent here and I'm going to bring you in again. That makes two little expertise drop-ins. <laughs> here I come with my little parachute. So I have remarked repeatedly in the course of this episode that I just have the feeling of being like, it's so disorienting to go go back so many years and hear exactly the same language. And one of the things that that really stood out to me was the what now seem almost charming concerns for conflicts of interest in the Bush administration, and particularly the tight links 
between the Bush family and the McGraw-Hill conglomerate. And and on the one hand, I mean, it's amazing to go back and, and realize sort of how things never change, but also the level of outrage seems well beyond what what now we've really grown used to. Like, well, of, of course they would <laughs> funnel contracts to their nearest and dearest. Right. So so just give us a quick summary of of some of the allegations of conflict of interest, the controversy that was swirling around this program. Yeah, it really had to do with particular publishers. Uh, so Reading First uh, was a program that was curriculum agnostic in the sense that it did not identify particular kinds of resources that needed to be adopted. Um, it instead classified the kinds of resources. Uh, so again, it had to focus on phonemic awareness and phonics, on vocabulary, on fluency and comprehension. Um, and then it was up to uh, you know an expert panel to decide which products, which curricula, which professional development trainings could be uh, used, could be adopted um, using Reading First funds. And of course, that presented opportunities for particular publishers, McGraw-Hill being one of them, to have their materials identified as Reading First appropriate. And so given that opportunity, um, you know, there was a lot of lobbying that went on, and it turned out that some of the people tasked with approving uh, vendors, approving materials, themselves had pretty tight connections with some of these publishers. You're right that it does feel kind of quaint that, uh, you know, we go back and read about um, the big controversy over reading first, which today seems like standard practice. Of course you would grease the palms of particular people who have the ability to, you know, channel federal dollars to you. Um, but that combined with a lot of controversy around the official study of Reading First and its impacts led to Congress really slashing funding for Reading First. So George Miller from California was one of the people who was uh, leading the charge against Reading First. And there was a lot of media coverage at the time about Reading First being, uh, you know, it, mired in controversy, right? Surrounded by controversy. And I think that that partially helps us understand why some people view Reading First as a program that worked and that never got a fair shake. Um, because I think that's a part of the narrative when you're talking about the sort of back to the future sense that we get in 2023. It's, it kind of feels like we're back in 2008 as the Reading First program was being cut, right? They are relitigating this 15 years later. So where were we? You understand by now that Reading First was big and that it was not without its controversies. But did it work? That, of course, is a complicated question. But education journalist Karen Chenoweth is strongly of the opinion that the sharp national pivot towards structured reading instruction made a measurable difference. And she says that to make sense of that, 
you have to understand just how unstructured the previous era of instruction was, and not just in reading. I experienced this as a parent because my daughter went into school in 1991. Her school was a whole language school. I didn't know anything about reading instruction. That was not a good experience for her in kindergarten. And it wasn't the fault of the teacher. The teacher was wonderful. It was the fault of sort of the zeitgeist that had really de-emphasized structured learning of any sort. It was all kind of, you'll just absorb how to read if your parents read to you enough. And I was reading to her and she wasn't learning to read. A little more on Karen. She's the author most recently of Districts That Succeed, Breaking the Correlation Between Race, Poverty, and Achievement. It's a great book. Definitely check it out. And let's just say that she is data-driven. Karen says that if you look at the long-term NAEP, that's a slightly different version of the nation's report card that you're used to hearing so much about, you see two big periods of improvement for all student groups. The first was from 1971 to 1988. That was the moment when we actually got serious about desegregating public schools. But there's a second period of improvement from around 1999 to 2012. Karen is convinced that a big part of that story was the change in reading instruction, which kicked off with two big deal national reports. Both of them made strong arguments that most children need quite structured reading instruction. And the structured reading approach, you can say that it began in 1998 and it increased through the years of reading first. And I don't know how else you explain that improvement. There may be other explanations, but I haven't seen any research. So that's my explanation, and I would like to see somebody else have a different explanation. But if Karen is correct, doesn't that make it all the more, well, weird that this whole period of time has been essentially forgotten? I put that question to Sharon Walpole. Sharon is a professor of education at the University of Delaware, and Reading First looms really large for her. You know, I learned so much during Reading First. I've been carrying that work through since. And I also think it's funny that people aren't talking about it at all. And also not benefiting from what we learned. You know, that's the weird thing. Now, most of the people I talked to for this episode have followed a similar career trajectory. They started out teaching during Reading First, then went to grad school. Sharon took a different path. She made the unusual choice to go from a PhD program studying literacy at the University of Virginia into a school where she worked as a literacy coach. Now, this was back when coaching was barely a thing. And when Reading First rolled out, Sharon says that she already understood that the key to transforming reading instruction was to get three different pieces working together. Curriculum, assessment, instruction, professional learning. It has to be a coherent system for teachers. And in Reading First, you know, we learned that if you just do professional learning in the science of reading, which is the same science that the science of reading is talking about now, it doesn't influence achievement because it's too hard to bring that science to bear on materials that are inconsistent with it. And we know that. So why are we doing it again? Why are we investing many, many millions of dollars in letters training, for example, which is probably meets the characteristics of high-quality professional learning, 
but it's not about the materials that teachers have. Bridging that distance, that's the entire game. Sharon studies the effect of professional development on reading instruction, and she says that the re-rollout of the science of reading offers a chance to fix what was missing the first time around. It's all about coherence. So we have to build systems for teaching and learning that serve adults and children. And those systems have to build knowledge, have to provide seamless links from that knowledge building to instructional materials that use the very same things teachers are learning about in their own classrooms. And then we have to carefully study which of those evidence-based practices work for whom and under what conditions. Also having chances for people who have very strong, deep backgrounds in empirical research on reading and writing be part of the process of evaluating curricula is going to be necessary. We're just going to waste a lot of money and hurt a lot of kids, actually. We have a chance to establish coherence because states are investing money. The feds are investing money. States are interested and sort of primed to take advantage of that money. And they're going to make investments in professional learning, in curriculum adoption, and in support in schools, directed support in schools, like for coaching. So let's make sure that all of those things are aligned. Of course, there are big differences between the 2000s-era context when scientifically-based reading research was briefly the law of the land and today. Sharon says that teachers are being asked to make the same pivot they made during the Reading First era, but in a far less forgiving climate. But now it's just higher stakes. Because the pandemic, because the teaching force is burnt out and cranky, we're doing the same thing to them again that Reading First did. But in this case, the economics of it are more fraught. So I think it's going to be much more stressful for teachers who invest their own time in letters training and do build their content knowledge and then find themselves still provided brand new curriculum not aligned to even the basic science of reading and writing. Which, and also, we have, it has to be writing, reading and writing. Yeah, I think the consequences for students and for retaining the workforce will be grave. Remember reading expert Jim Hoffman, who we met way back at the start of this episode? Well, Jim told me that the reemergence of the science of reading in Texas has taken him right back to the 90s when he was a young professor in Austin, but with some notable differences this time around. Texas is also on the front lines of an effort to limit what teachers can teach and students can learn. Jim says that in his long career, he hasn't seen anything like this level of politicization before, and that worries him. That's a new level. We didn't see that in the Texas Reading Initiative in previous iterations of the Reading Wars. I don't remember a time when local school districts were being pressured in the ways they are now by political groups. That seems like a whole new arena of activity. It's difficult for me to go back in the history and find that. 
I can trace the reading wars. You know, I can trace the whole language movement, the literature-based movement, as they were constructed and then gained momentum around the country and then were pushed back on. I can trace those histories, but this history of what's going on now with local school districts, school boards, and what they're doing and, and requiring of teachers is new territory for me. Jim says that the return of the science of reading is taking place in a policy context of more and more constraints on teachers and the schools of education that prepare them. I get upset when I see people take those ideas and then turn them into policies that constrain what teachers can do in classrooms as part of their pedagogical practices. And not just teachers, but also teacher educators. I mean, we have lived in Texas under this policy sort of world in which we are increasingly constrained in terms of what we teach, how we teach, how we do our research, what we do our research on. That's very troubling because in the end, it disrupts good teaching, which is responsive to kids. That notion of responsiveness and adaptation in teaching has been lost because teachers are following scripts and teachers are being watched and being harassed and pressed to follow what the mandates are within the state. This episode has been about history, recent history, and how weird it is that something as big and relatively recent as reading first has been memory hold, and how by forgetting it ever happened, we can't learn anything from it. But this story is also about teachers who started their careers during the reading first era and then went to grad school to try to make sense of what they lived through. For Sarah Wolfen, the Reading First coach at an East Palo Alto elementary school, the questions she took with her have informed her whole career. Like, how do teachers experience education reform? And how does the micro-level world of a school affect how change does and doesn't happen? But her years teaching and coaching reading back in the early 2000s also left her with some big questions about Reading First itself. Like, why did students at her school, who seemed to benefit so much from structured reading, later hit a wall? It was a sense that we sort of hit a plateau, that like, okay, so our kids are reading pretty darn well, which is good and great in certain ways on paper and ultimately, you know, by end of second grade, beginning of third grade. But how do we get them to that next level where they're then reading kind of, for instance, expository text? Or how do we kind of like make sure that their academic vocabulary kind of stays at the level or meets the level that like we expect and desire? It provided like a boost, but then sort of a boost to a plateau. And then there's sort of the like, okay, the what's next? What's kind of the, the next sort of lift for this? And why did reading instruction look so different in her Title I school and at the school of her mentor teacher a world away in Palo Alto? And so I would observe her classroom in Palo Alto, which is a classic kind of across the highway, different district, completely different demographics. And reading instruction looked entirely different than what we had been sort of told and what was really set up as like what the kids need in East Palo Alto was set up as very, very different from what sort of the whole school environment and literacy instructional opportunities kind of look like and entail in Palo Alto. And I kind of, I could never kind of get that out of my head. A huge thank you to all of the experts who assisted with this episode. Sarah Wolfen, Jim Hoffman, Sharon Walpole, Karen Chenoweth, Rachel Gabriel, and Rebecca Silverman. That is a lot of people. And Jack and I will be right back to muse over the demise of scientifically-based reading instruction and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. You may have heard about the states that are now rolling back child labor protections. Well, 
it's not a coincidence that these are the same states that are dismantling their public schools. What's the connection? To find out, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. So, Jack, as I was working on this episode, and I can't even tell you how how long it took, which is why it it is a little late out of the gate, but I kept thinking to a previous, a recent episode we did um, with a friend of yours, Mark Levichek, about the big reveal. And it was sort of the, you know, like the the narrative that, you know, finally, once and we're all, we're going to expose the source of what's gone wrong in our schools. And I was thinking about that because the particular story of reading that's being told right now pins all the blame on what seemed to me to be such specific villains, so specific. And yet, as we learned in the course of this episode, a lot, you know, there were many different reasons why reading first uh, fell by the wayside. There was the controversy that you talked about. There was the study, which you're going to tell us a little bit more about. There were, you know, there were there were lots of reasons, but a big one was that, you know, the the theory of change changed, right? New sheriffs arrived and it was time for the Common Core. And that took, you know, that, that had a very different understanding of how kids should approach text. So it's interesting to me that somehow, you know, like why, why does Arnie Duncan and his team get let off the hook. So so I'm just curious what you think about that. I think one of the things that helps explain that is that the Obama administration was really much more focused on high school and college than on early childhood and early elementary. So if you go back and you read some of Obama's speeches about education or you read some of Arnie Duncan's speeches about education, it's all about college and career. Now, certainly that begins with early literacy, but I think as far as they were concerned, you mentioned theory of change. The theory of change was you've got 13 years to prepare young people for college and careers, and those really were the outcomes that they were most concerned with. And for them, it really meant a laser focus on teachers, on getting the right educators in the classroom, on measuring them according to student standardized test scores. And in some sense, you know, they were thinking more broadly about education, thinking across the curriculum, across the span of PK to 12 education, even as they were thinking just as narrowly, right, focused in a sort of laser-like way on student standardized test scores. One thing that I want to bring us back to is the 2008 study that was commissioned by IES. Uh, So that's the research branch of the Department of Education that found that students in schools receiving funds for the Reading First program basically had no better reading skills than children in schools that didn't get those funds. This was, some people refer to it as a silver standard study, pretty close to the gold standard, um, a kind of experimental design there where students within districts either got or didn't get the kinds of programming that could be supported by Reading First. And there have been a number of explanations for why 
that study found that there was no statistically significant difference between the experimental group and the control group. One of the most interesting explanations came from a research group called MDRC, and they suggested that maybe the reason that there was no statistically significant difference between the reading scores of students who received programming funded by Reading First and those who did not is that the type of reading instruction that was promoted by Reading First was already in wide use. And I think that's a really interesting explanation because the advocates of so-called scientifically-based reading instruction often presume, right, they, they make a very strong argument that people are not using scientifically-based principles in teaching reading. And it certainly may be the case that it isn't happening to the extent that advocates would like. But the MDRC study suggests it's happening a lot more than you may think, right? And that it isn't that reading first doesn't work. It's that a lot of reading first type instruction was already happening. And so you didn't really have an experimental group and a control group. You really had an experimental group and an experimental plus one group. Um, and even if you just look at, for instance, how much instructional time was devoted to the core elements of so-called scientifically-based reading instruction, it was like seven to ten minutes a day, maybe, maybe five to ten minutes a day, um, on top of nearly an hour that was already devoted to teaching this way. And so you can see why the effect might have been a, a pretty small effect, and also it could be that these kinds of approaches do actually make a difference, right? And the way that you can square that circle is that um, actually these kinds of practices are simply far more widespread than critics of, let's say, whole language um, would care to admit. Well, thank you, Jack. And I just want to let listeners know that if there was anything in the in this episode that caused you to become angry or unhappy, please direct your complaints to Jack Schneider. That's right. You can reach me at Jennifer Berkshire at HaveYouHeardPod.com. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, the next portion of our segment is devoted to those listeners who are not angry with us. Those would be the <laughs> listeners who think so highly of our quality programming that they actually pay a little extra to hear us talk some more. And Jack, I'm going to surprise you as per my custom with the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment. And we are going to be talking about the newfound, uh, call it interest, in in returning children to the workforce and how that relates <laughs> You're to... You're obsessed with this. This is all you tweet about these it days. It is. It's true. And I am. I, I was ahead of my time and now I'm I'm right on time. So I'm going to share with you a little, uh, a little hypothesis and see what you think. If you, listener, are interested in learning more about why child labor has come roaring back and what it can tell us about the future... 
Just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter for a few dollars each month. You help us keep the show going. You get access to our special area we call in the weeds and you get a custom reading list for each episode. And right now, if you subscribe at the $10 a month level, you get the newly released paperback edition of Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, which includes our new preface. And if joining the Patreon society uh, of diamond-shoed individuals would require you to put your children to work, uh, then there are lots of other ways to support the show. Uh, please remember, this is a democratic community, and you are a member of it. Um, make sure that you are a subscriber so that the latest episode always downloads to your device. Give us a rating if you can. We think that helps people find the show. But of course, the best way to make sure that people find the show is through word of mouth. That's how we grow. So let your friends, colleagues, and neighbors know. Uh, that they've got an episode uh, that they can queue up, whether it's your favorite episode or the latest episode. Um, and if you want to tag us on Twitter, the show handle is at Have You Heard Pod. Finally, we love hearing from you in the Have You Heard mailbag. So feel free to go to the show website and contact us through there. That's HaveYouHeardPodcast.com. Well, Jack, that was really well done. It was scientific. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard.